Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Ashley Lockin, taking over for Cayenne Isaacson. This week, it's 321Go with Cosmo Macero and Suzanne Morse, which also includes a very special discussion with our own Jamie Dunbar. Then, we have an interview with Lisa Fiorentino and Susan Randazzo of Indian Hill Music. And in Two Minutes with Tom, Tom reflects on the legacy of the legendary Cokie Roberts. First up, 321Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321Go, we look at the Daily Hampshire Gazette newspaper out in Hampshire County and its expansion into the city of Holyoke, which for many years has been underserved with regards to local news. And we'll talk to our own Jamie Dunbar about the Big E in West Springfield, the grandest fair across all of Massachusetts. Finally, we'll mark the passing this week of Rick Ocasek, one of the founders and stars of The Cars, a Boston-based band whose impact transcended the 80s, 90s, and right up until today's generation. Joining me here on 321GO is Suzanne Morse. Suzanne, it's great to have you here. Happy to be here, Cosmo, as always. Excellent. All right, let's get to it. All right, Suzanne, let's set the table for the Daily Hampshire Gazette, a great community local newspaper out in Western Mass, based in Northampton, serves much of Hampshire County, some of Franklin. Um, I'm one of those people who is an alumni of the Hampshire Gazette. Right. Um, and uh, it has announced this week it is expanding coverage into the city of Holyoke, which is interesting for a number of uh, reasons, uh, not least of which is when you talk about a news desert, a community that's sort of underserved, yeah. Holyoke has kind of been that way for about 30 years off and on, uh, and, and, and different media in Western Mass um, have, have tried to address that. This is an ambitious and significant move, and I think, I think well uh well-received. What are your thoughts on that and, uh, and, and how it's going to serve the community? Yeah, well, I, first of all, I thought it was really interesting the way that the Hampshire Gazette actually laid out that history. In announcing this, they, they laid out in a pretty comprehensive way the, the, the way that the uh, community of Holyoke had been underserved. They talked about the history of the T&T, and they talked about the fact that there had been other efforts made, and, and they haven't quite taken um, so I, I thought that was interesting. I also thought it was interesting that they framed this as a social justice issue, that access to journalism is a social justice issue. And when you look at a community like Holyoke, which is a gateway city, which is, you know, got its fair share of, you know, poverty, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that they see this as um, a social justice issue. So Yeah. I mean, ha- having seen this close up at different points in history as a very young journalist at the Gazette and, and, and the, uh, the TT, the, the Holyoke Transcript Telegram, one of many once great small city dailies that just would, were not able to sustain themselves yeah. uh, as, the, as, as the news business evolved. The uh, the Springfield Republican also spent a number of years covering Holyoke. Still does, yep. um, but but their bureau there has been gone for years, and it really isn't a very strong local news presence. Uh, the Gazette is right there along Route Five and Ten, right yep. next to Holyoke, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And it is a social justice issue because community news, access to local news, independent, uh, uh, strong journalism is important to every community 
in Massachusetts and, and, and really across America. Um, we were talking before, uh, uh, you know, off air, about the role of the Gazette also. Yeah. Um, and papers like it as a really important training ground for young journalists. I'm a, I'm a kind of a case study of that because I came from UMass Amherst, began my first job there while I was still in college. Hundreds and hundreds uh, of others uh, have followed since. Um, but your, your thoughts on that, because I think it's an important role. Yeah, it is. I mean, we're both um, alums of UMass Amherst. I did, and I was a journalism major, though I did not actually uh, go into journalism. But um, going through the journalism program, I was always aware of people who were um, going through the internship program there or had started their careers there. And yeah. I mean, I see this as probably an extension of that kind of mission, which is to train young journalists to know how to cover the nuts and bolts of stories in their community. So I, I think it's a, you know, I, I applaud the uh, Hampshire Gazette for this move. I do too. I think it's terrific. We've, we've got a little bit of a uh, Western Mass flavor to this episode. We'll be talking about the Big E uh, with our colleague Jamie Dunbar. We spoke uh, at different times over the past few weeks and have observed the news about Mass Live, mm -hmm. which is Springfield-based, essentially the digital property of the Springfield Republican. And um, I got to tell you, those two properties, the Gazette the Republican, very early on, made a commitment to their digital um, yeah. media property and have made it as successful as it can be, yeah. have done a really good job because they've stayed with it. You know, I also think it just speaks to uh, you, uh, that innovation in journalism isn't necessarily just going to come from large media outlets like the Boston Globe or the New York Times. And, you know, the Republican for instance, has a long history of innovation. Uh, y you probably remember Howard Ziff. I remember Howard Ziff, who was a kind of legendary professor at UMass Amherst, who talked about the fact that I think it was the Union News, which was the predecessor to the Republican, who first created sort of sections of the newspaper. So, you know, that's there's a long history of innovation in media coming from places other than the main me media properties that we think about. What a marvelous so. news business historian you are, Suzanne. You're absolutely 100% right. David Starr. May he rest in peace right. just past months ago, essentially invented the zoned edition. The right. dif different zones, different areas where you replate the front page and have a different, um, absolutely innovative 40 years ago. So great piece of history. All right, Suzanne, thanks. Thanks, Cosmo. All right, up next on 321 Go with Suzanne and myself, we've got Jamie Dunbar, our colleague from the Government Relations Division of O'Neill & Associates. Jamie, how are you? I'm great today. How are you, Kaz? Excellent. Thanks for coming in to talk about the Big E, the biggest thing in agricultural and uh, community fairs, I think, statewide. Now, just let me just set it up real quick. I'm a big fair guy, right? I'm a Marshfield guy in the mm -hmm. summer, so mm -hmm. I think like the Marshfield Fair is like the sickest thing of all time. For sure. Um, used to go to the Brockton Fair. Loved the... No, I've never been to the Topsfield Fair. Loved... Used oh, to that's love... that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. Now, the Tri-County was a classic. That is the one where we used to, when my children were little... Uh, fool them into thinking they were at the Big E. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's like going to Storyland and saying, yes. no, no, it's Disney. <laughs> yes. It's the Big E. They, no, the Tri-County was great. My favorite no. story from the Tri-County, real quick, I was covering a story there for the Daily Hampshire Gazette, and it was about how the jockeys were fixing the races and how did they do it because they all spoke Spanish. No one knew what the heck they were talking about, and they were fixing the races. It was pretty funny. Anyways, little fair talk. Okay, let's talk about the Big E, which is the biggest thing 
and Massachusetts fairs in West Springfield oh, yeah. every year. Biggest entertainment, biggest attractions, biggest agricultural program. Yes. Let's have it. Absolutely. Well, a little background on me. I'm from, I was born in uh, the Berkshires, but uh, basically raised in the Springfield area. Uh, so I've been going to the Big E for many, many years. A uh, little hiatus in my young adulthood, but uh, again, as I mentioned, I have children now. We go every year. We make a great point to go. It is uh, the quintessential sort of throwback to that state fair era. And um, yeah, between the agricultural, uh, the, the largest pumpkins and the most beautiful heifers and the uh, most outstandingly groomed chickens, uh, but all the way to the, you know, the history of, the, the, of, of New England with the state buildings and everything that they have to offer, the place is just uh, uh, a little something for everybody, and it's, uh, it's a great annual um, uh, event to capture for sure. It is. I, I love the agricultural components of a fair. Suzanne, you're not a fair veteran, but I imagine, no. but you are, you are a, um, a student of New England culture. That is true. And to my shame, I have not been to the Biggie. I have been to the Tri-County Fair when I was a, a student at UMass. Um, so my question for you then is, you know, I, I watch or I know about the sort of other state fairs where they have things like the Butter Queen and all that kind of stuff. Is there sort of an iconic food that has, that comes out oh, of the there's Big Oh, d- there's definitely an iconic food. I mean, the big thing everybody has to get when they're... If you got it, they'll fry it. Well, well that's <laughs> just it. There's the fried piece. With the, the, the Big E Cream Puff is, oh. is the standard Big E food, but... You, you can't. Wow, I did not know that. But, but then there's nuances, Suzanne. Ah. If you go through the state buildings, uh, each state in New England has a beautiful sort of brick uh, uh, building that, that is their home where they get to showcase the best of their state. So you go from building to building, and you know when you're in Vermont, you've got to try the cheese. Sure, of course. The main building, however, is famous for their baked potatoes. Because who doesn't think of potatoes when you think of Maine? Right. But well, I think of lobster. But th- yeah. They potatoes, also have yeah. some fantastic <laughs> lobster and blueberry offerings sure. there, too. But then you head over to the Rhode Island building and make sure you get your frozen Dell's lemonade. Mm. And you head over to the Connecticut building. Actually, in the back of the Connecticut building now is a fantastic uh, microbrew sort of uh, uh, outdoor, you know, bunch, a bunch of little uh, kiosks with all, all the best breweries that are kind of coming what in and out New of Connecticut Hampshire now. Do? You know, it's funny. I have a question mark next to New Hampshire. <laughs> Fireworks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, a number yeah. of years ago, there was a big story yeah, in the Globe, I, I think, about this fact that New Hampshire does not have an iconic I, food. I, I apologize to New Hampshire for not remembering what is inside that building as far as the icon, but I will say the New Hampshire state troopers are always there sort of in force and engaging with uh, 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 kids uh, and adults alike with, with their apparatus, and, and they're, they're great, wonderful people, so I certainly want to make sure I don't overlook New Hampshire completely. Talking about the different state buildings, good Good moment to inform the listeners who may not know, Biggie, the Eastern States Exposition. That's yes. kind of what the the full name of the Biggie is. That's right. Uh, encompassing all of the New England states on uh, in, 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 in one facility. That's right. And it is an exposition of everything that the entire New England has to offer. Um, and But what's great is people come from all over the world to visit the Biggie. Yeah. And, and especially on a weekend like last weekend, they had 177,000 visitors, wow. uh, which I think uh, may have set a record. And that was a opening weekend because the weather couldn't have been beat. It was a perfect, quint- also quintessential New England uh, fall, yeah. well, late summer day. Look, just because just we were talking about the news a little bit during... during um, uh, this episode, um, a- anecdotally, one, one of the mandates uh, covering the news in Springfield, covering the news for the Springfield Republican that I remember from both sides because I 
I worked in the Agawam Westside Bureau, which is Agawam and West Springfield. It's right there. I also worked in the Metro Bureau down sort of in Palmer Brimfield. When the Brimfield flea market came around three times a year, you had to have at least one really good story every day, which was tough. The Big E, I think, that, I think they had to have a couple stories a day for 17 days. Wow. <laughs> yes. That's like 35 stories about the Big E over, over a two, two, two and a half. That's pretty tough. It is. So. It is. But you know what? The news station's set up there now. The Big E uh, provides plenty of content and uh, between bringing in sort of major musical acts, uh, uh, their their daily events, whether it be, you know, if, if they're doing the agricultural things on a Monday and each day is a different state day. So there's always something to report coming out of the Big E, and they do a pretty good job of providing, uh, the, the Big E itself, of providing sort of events that then uh, uh, deserve that, that coverage. And that, it, it runs through... This runs through the end of September. So they've actually expanded it recently uh, in the last few years. So now it goes all the way till September 29th. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, plenty of time. Plenty Big of e, time. Big E, West Springfield. Great. Jamie, thanks for joining us on 321 Go. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. See you all at the Big E. All right, Suzanne, this week, another passing of another rock legend, Rick Ocasek yes. of the Cars, Boston band. I think I think uh, uh, he's actually a product of uh, the Midwest or Ohio, but the band relocated to Boston in the, in the 70s. That's um, their groundbreaking debut album, I think it was 1978, uh, really the soundtrack for a lot my people like myself, sort of the soundtrack for, your, for that portion of your youth, yep. for me, adolescence and, and, and uh, early teenager years. But um, it, I believe it is true, and I've seen this uh, in a lot of commentary over the past few days this week, that that album, those songs, um, are, are about the best definition of timeless as you can get. Yeah. Um, you know, My Best Friend's Girl and yep. Moving in Stereo and Good Times Roll are songs that they do not age. You can hear them now and, 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 and be in any generation. You're like, that's a great song. You know, that's catchy. I like that. Yeah. And not all music holds up like that. No, it's funny because I was telling our producer here, Ashley, yesterday I was um, playing um, My Best Friend's Girl. And I think what I was what I was saying to her is it does have a 70s quality to it, but it is still timeless. And there are very few songs like that in general across generations and i think the cars really did achieve that yeah um my thought is um i do not think you can exaggerate how big the cars were at a certain point and how you know there were these bands particularly for people like you and me who grew up in this area and who grew up in that era uh, there were bands that you knew were from Boston, and the Cars were it. Jay Giles, Aerosmith, Boston, um, yeah. the band. They were massive in, in ways that I think, if you didn't grow up in that era, you have no idea because you just they were that big. They were that big and important to the music world. Yeah. So I, you know, having unfortunately never seen them perform live in person. Um, I have gone back, and, and, and through the magic of YouTube, there's so much live footage of yeah. any band you want these days, you can go back. Yeah. And the, one of the knocks, I don't know if it was a knock, but one of the sort of things about the Cars and Boston, that band also, were that they were not necessarily, particularly the Cars, a, a dynamic live act. Yeah, right. But, um, and, and uh, if, if you go through some interviews with Rick Ocasek, he kind of acknowledged that, I don't know if I'm a great performer, right. um, you know, b but I love creating this music, and... and 
And they would essentially go on stage and pretty much reproduce the songs note for note off the record, which is kind of cool. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of interpretation or dancing around in showmanship. And it was the early 80s, so yeah. it, the style was more like, you know, these these tall, wicked, skinny, right. nerdy-looking guys. Playing guitar. Playing guitar and, yeah. and, a, and, a, and, a, and a really nerdy guy on keyboards. But <laughs> they, they recreated their music so magnificently in uh, live based on all the footage I've seen. Maybe he wasn't the greatest showman, but mo- boy, you, you must have been getting your money's worth seeing them perform live. Well, and I also think that it's really, um, they're an interesting case of people who were able to transition from rock radio to video radio. I mean, my first exposure to them was the You Might Think video. And that that video was pretty revolutionary in terms of the animation used. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, not all bands were able to make that transition from sort of the late 70s rock radio to to video and in fact one of their contemporaries Aerosmith wasn't able to do it until after them and you know with the help of Run DMC so you're you're totally right I I would describe I would absolutely categorize the cars as one of those bands that helped not sustain but enabled MTV to become absolutely this massive cultural particularly with that that you might think video I mean if anyone if you listening and you haven't seen or you haven't looked at the you might think video Recently, you should go back and look at it on YouTube. It's actually still a pretty cool video to watch. Um, The other thing I wanted to say about it is, and you did an interview very recently with the the former owner of the Channel Night Club. Yes, yeah. And... uh, Harry Boris, yeah. Yeah, and it's such an interesting era because, again, I think that if you grew up in the era like you and I did, you know how much Boston, the city, played a role in kind of developing new acts and I feel like we've lost that and that's a shame because I think when pop culture remains vital when they're hearing from voices and and sounds outside of New York and LA they're hearing from places like Boston and Detroit um, and Atlanta or you know places that aren't those kind of centers because that's how you hear new things Agreed. and it's too bad that Boston has kind of lost its position as a a place where music is being created as vital. Yeah. You know, I'm not, you know, huge into the scene, so maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but well, I, I got to say in closing, for people of my generation, uh, you know, adolescent, literally 13, 14 years old in 1981, when the, 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 there's a very iconic moment <laughs> featuring a car song, Moving in Stereo, one of their great songs from that first album, from the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'll just sort of leave it at that. It's a very iconic scene. Myself, like many other people of my age, I'm sure, I got all kinds of text messages when Rick Ocasek yeah. passed with a little video and sort of a Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> remember <laughs> this? So uh, that, that's how a lot of people remember uh, that uh, uh, the band for that iconic moment in that film. But boy, what a band with a lasting impact. Absolutely. What a musician. Um, uh, married a supermodel. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Rick Ocasek, uh, he passed this week. Uh, so... Oh, and let me put one other uh, plug in for the song Drive, which was actually not Rick Ocasek's uh, vocals. It was Benjamin Orr. Yes. It's a beautiful, beautiful Benjamin song. Benjamin Orr. Uh, he, I think Benjamin Orr also sang Just What I Needed, yeah. which is also a great song yep. by them. All right, Suzanne. Thanks. Great conversation. Thanks, Cosmo. That's going to do it for this edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 108, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in Government Center, downtown Boston. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's it for 3 to 1 Go. Up next, an interview with Lisa Fiorentino and Susan Randazzo of Indian Hill Music. 
This is Suzanne Morris, Vice President at O'Neill and Associates, and I am here today with Lisa Fiorentino and Susan Rendazzo of Indian Hill Music, a community music center based in central Massachusetts. Lisa is Indian Hill's Chief Executive Officer, and Susan, an accomplished cellist, has performed a variety of, of roles for the organization, but now focuses on institutional advancement. Welcome to both Lisa and Susan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lisa, let's start. Tell us a little more about Indian Hill Music Center and what makes it so special. Sure. Well, Indian Hill Music is a nonprofit music education and performance center located in Littleton, Massachusetts. And our mission is to share the transformative power of music through teaching and performing and giving music generously when there is need. You know, we do this really through three main areas of our organization. Our educational component is really through our community music school, which serves about 1,300 students of all ages and abilities in 30 plus instruments and voice. We offer private lessons, class and ensemble opportunities, and we really offer the most comprehensive music education in the region. That we do this through our amazing faculty as well as something that we call the Indian Hill Advantage, which is our student benefits, where a student at Indian Hill, in addition to their lessons or their classes and ensembles, will also take um, free workshops, free master classes, they'll be able to do performance opportunities, and they'll also be able to have free attendance to the second component of our organization, which is our performance arm. And that is professional performances that we do. We do about 40 professional performances a year right now, and that's really anchored by our Professional Orchestra of Indian Hill, which is a 70-member professional orchestra led by artistic director and conductor Bruce Hangen. We do a six-concert masterwork series with our orchestra. And then in addition to that, we also do all kinds of other genres of music in our Blackman Hall, which is in our Littleton facility. And those range from jazz to bluegrass to traditional to folk. We have a big band. We do some swing. We even this past year did a barn dance. So mm -hmm. lots of fun things that people can be participating in that way as well. And then the third component of our organization is our music philanthropy. And that is really where we give music generously when there is need. And it's a really important component of our organization. You know, we do everything from scholarships as well as helping those who are most vulnerable in our community. So our seniors, students who otherwise would not have the opportunity to take part in music. I mean, it's a really important component of what we do. And, you know, to answer your question about what's so special about Indian Hill, you know, we are um, we're a community organization. And we offer a very warm and welcoming environment. Many of the people that come to Indian Hill consider it a feeling of home, and that's important to us. We value social connection, we value vibrant experiences, and we really truly believe in making music and creating community, and that's an important So you mentioned the, the philanthropic work that you guys do. Susan, you were part of, the, of Indian Hill's Threshold Singers Choir, which was actually very recently featured in the Boston Globe. Um, the choir sings at uh, the bedsides of individuals who are in hospice care. Talk a little bit about the Threshold Singers, how that came about, and what the experience is like on your end. So uh, back in 2007, the organization uh, was working on our mission, and we chose to make music philanthropy a much more of a cornerstone of what we do. We'd always done it, but we had never really told that story. Mm -hmm. And in 2007, one of our faculty members was um, in her oncologist's office actually wondering if she might be having a recurrence mm -hmm. of breast cancer and she opened up a magazine, real simple magazine, opened it up randomly to a page that told the story of Kate Munger who is the founder of the national organization Threshold Choir. 
And uh, Pam Espinoza uh, said to herself, if I'm okay, I want to do this work. And so she uh, worked with our then uh, director of education, and they went to New York and did a workshop with Kate and came back and said, Susan, this is, this is community music and this is really sharing the transformative mm-hmm. power. And can we start a choir at Indian Hill? And I was like, of course we can. How perfect is this? And so we began in uh, the fall of 2007. So we're coming up on 12 years old. Wow. And we've been, uh, took us about a year before we started singing at Bedsides uh, to prepare and to learn the repertoire because we're part of a national organization. There are now um, well over 200 choirs around the country and we share repertoire and we do this process the same way just three people at a bedside um, singing simple songs. Um, as a member from the beginning, I can say, and, and I know you introduced me as an accomplished cellist, uh, but I can say honestly that the singing at bedside is the most important music that I make. Yeah. It, it's, it's completely different than sitting on a stage and watching an audience rise to their feet, you know, full of of joy and acclimate. This is a space where you are um, literally seeing the change in the client that you're singing for, whether it's in their breathing, whether there's you know tension that you see recede from the body, and also for the family or caregivers that are present. Sure. Um, it's a privilege and an honor, and we get back as much as we give. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I think in our culture and our society, we tend to think of music as um, about performance, but I think the kind, that kind of work is also about how music can be sacred and provide that kind it's of... An, it's a good observation because I, I think what, what we feel um, is that we change the energy in the room, mm. that the space, there's, we create a safe space uh, for whatever feelings arise. Um, it's, you learn to do the work too because it's very important to, to be able to just focus on the client. Sure. It's not about us. It's about them and the, the others in the room. So it's very much a service, and, um, and it, it's just amazing work. Yeah. So Lisa, we talked, you briefly touched on the work that you guys do in the school system, mm-hmm. in a number of different school systems around the state, yes. including um, uh, Lemonster and Fitchburg and yes. Lawrence. Talk a little bit about that work and, how, and what you're doing within those schools. Sure. Well, one of the most important things, <coughs> excuse me, is that to in today's world, you know, you find in many school districts that music is one of the first things that gets taken out of the curriculum. And it's really important that kids have access to a well-rounded education. And so what we try to do is we go to school districts that are high need, underserved, and we want to be able to provide music education and music opportunities to them that they would not otherwise have available to them. So one example is in Fitchburg. We are currently in one of their public schools, which is the McKay Arts Academy. And when you hear the name, you would think that it would be doing music and art and all those kinds of things. But actually, that school is a fifth through eighth grade, and they had no music program at all. So we went in, and we worked with the principal, and we worked with the school district to be able to provide a band program in school during the day, free of charge to the community, free of charge to the students, so that those students could have the opportunity to be part of a band and to have that musical education component. So we started this last year, and we did fifth grade. This year we're doing fifth and sixth. Next year we'll do fifth, sixth, and seventh, and then fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, so that the entire school actually has the possibility of being part of a band program, which is so important. 
Um, in other communities, we're in um, the city of Lawrence and we're in the city of Clinton or the town of Clinton where we go in and we actually supplement what they have going on. So they do, they're lucky that they do have music education, which is critical and they should have that. We go in and we supplement with sectionals so that students can really elevate their playing and make sure that they're um, you know, getting different feedback on, on ways to be doing things. Um, another example is our Air Shirley program. We've partnered with Air Shirley for 13 years, and we actually started in that school district when they had eliminated their music program because they didn't have the funding. And so we said, you know, that we, we need to be able to do something. So we went in and we started doing after-school lessons for um, students so that they would be able to start being able to take band instruments. Um, and luckily, about two years ago, the district finally was able to find the funds to be able to put music back in. And, and we thought that was a wonderful success story because we were able to supplement until they were able to actually go and put the music back into their curriculum. We now are still there. We're doing violin lessons because they have a band program, but they don't have any strings. So we're doing that. So the last thing I want to talk to you about, and either one of you can answer this, is um, the box lunch series that you guys um, have. Um, seniors, disabled adults, and others come to the, the center, which is currently in, in Littleton, to hear a free performance. Talk a little bit about that, um, that series. That program has been going on for uh, 12 or 13 years now. Started out with one performance a month on the third Thursday uh, between September and June. We now do two performances. Mm -hmm. um, they are faculty or orchestra musicians, and the program varies month to month. In one month it might be a, a piano recital, another month it might be a jazz trio, another month it might be someone singing old Italian songs. <laughs> um, it really, it, we change it up every month. Right. And in addition, the musicians speak from the stage and tell a little bit, give, provide context. So it's, there is some education there as well. We have um, 150 seniors come to each of those two performances, so, wow. so we're serving 300 a month. Our parking lot is filled with the vans from uh, assisted livings and uh, councils on aging in, uh, from far and wide, actually. Some come quite a distance right. to, to come to these performances. And for some of the folks who come, it is the only time they get to hear you know, a, a performance by professional musicians. Yeah. And uh, there are some lovely stories. Um, one that always comes to mind is because some of the uh, facilities are memory care units. Right. And um, one of the uh, staff members there once told us a story about how um, they were at the concert and one of our faculty was singing Italian songs and their, the mm -hmm. woman was singing along. And then later after dinner, the uh, staff member checked in with that person and said, you know, didn't we have a great day going to the concert? And uh, the woman said, gee, I, I don't remember going to the concert, but it's been a really good day. Oh, wow. And what that tells us is that music is retained in all the parts right. of the brain, and what you remember is the experience, right. not necessarily the actual moment. Right. So the the impact of that concert was being felt. Right, even if she didn't remember even if she, the music, even if she, she didn't remember, remember the feeling it. that exactly. it engendered. Um, and so... Uh, we have a waiting list, I think. We do. <laughs> we do. We have people who want to come to the concerts, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's um, absolutely important. Mm -hmm. I think all of these things are about connection yeah. mm -hmm. and about making relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys are doing an amazing job, and I think part of what is amazing, as you talked about at the beginning, Lisa, is that um, 
you are tying the music mission of the school to a community mission, and that's pretty amazing. Absolutely. I, we, we value that strongly. You know, we recently looked at our values and, and wanted to make sure that we rearticulated them, and, and we came back to the idea of making music, creating community, um, lots of social connection, lots of experiences, and, and that warm and welcoming environment, which, which you know, it, it's, it's special. When you come to Indian Hill, we hear our students say it all the time. They're coming. It's like their second home, yeah. and that's important to us. So is there anything you'd like to add? Um, well, I will say, you know, we're, we're busy. We're doing lots of wonderful things and, and sharing music with the community. We are right now in the middle of construction of a new music center. That's the Music Center at Indian Hill, which is going to be in Groton, Massachusetts. It will be a world-class cultural destination, not only for central Massachusetts, but really for New England and beyond. Lisa Fiorentino, Susan Rondazzo, thank you very much for joining us on OA On Air today. Thank you for letting okay. us be here. Thanks to Lisa and Susan for joining us. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Tom. How are you? Two Minutes with Tom. It's actually two and a half minutes with Hugh is what it is. Here we go. What's so, the conversation about today? Well, the passing of Cokie Roberts. A great friend. Cokie, uh, uh, um, she, she really, she really I, I think she fostered a great deal of opportunity for a woman in news during the course of her career. She was, she was smart, she was unabashed in her deliberate uh, access to people and questions to celebrity politicians and people who were making news and getting to all sides of every issue. Became a role model. I knew her because her dad served in Congress with my father, Hale Boggs. He was the majority uh, whip when he went to Alaska, he was a congressman from, from Louisiana, but he went to Alaska on a, on a campaign trip for another member of Congress and took a, a small plane which was forever lost in the mountains of Alaska. Um, and when that happened, Hale Boggs' wife turned to my dad to become the majority whip. Mm -hmm. And that was the anointment that put my father on the, on the leadership ladder for the speakership years down the road. And uh, because of that, the Boggs family and Cokie Roberts, their daughter, just have been lifelong friends. And her passing means a great deal to the O'Neill family, I can tell you that. Yeah. she um, Her uh, roots in politics certainly influenced her ability to be such a, tr a tremendous journalist. She was just completely comfortable, whether it was at the White House or in on the streets of, of, of New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, she, she just was confident in what she was doing, always studied and knew the issues, and always unafraid to ask, you know, the, the tough but real questions that needed to be addressed. Thank you, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Don't forget to subscribe. It can be Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check out OA on Air on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.